Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Uh, I've never been a very good uh, athlete. Uh, when we were kids on the playgrounds picking teams, I was never chosen first. I don't think I was chosen second or third or far, fourth. I was, I was very small when I was a kid. I was too small to play football. I always wanted to play football. I always wanted to play Pop Warner football. But you had to weigh at least 90 pounds. And I didn't weigh 90 pounds until I got to high school, uh, which meant I was too short to play basketball, although I think size was probably the least of my problems on the basketball court. And, uh, and baseball, I love baseball. I've just never been very good at all. Like when I was in college, my freshman year, I lived on a dorm, in a dorm, and some of the fellows on the floor asked me to join a team they were putting together to play intramural softball, and I did. And I became close friends with one of the uh, guys on the team, and eventually uh, we got close enough that he told me bluntly one day, we, we asked you to be on the team because we thought you were going to be a lot better than you were. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate the honesty, but ouch, that kind of stings a little bit. So in our lives, we, we end up, uh, sometimes surprisingly, on a lot of teams, playground teams, intramural teams, uh, study groups, work groups, church committees. In the story we just heard from the Gospel of John, from John chapter 21, uh, Jesus picks a surprising team. This story comes after Easter. It's a post-resurrection appearance, and uh, as John writes, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. And the disciples he shows himself to, the ones that, Peter, uh, that John names, are Simon Peter. We know Peter. Peter was one of the closest disciples of Jesus, one of the inner circle of disciples. But when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was being tried, Peter denied ever knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. If this had been a baseball team, three strikes and you're out, Peter. Right? He names Thomas. Thomas most famous for his doubts. We heard that story last week in chapter 20 of John. Unless I see the marks uh, of the nails, unless I can put his hand, my hand into the wound in his side, I will not believe. That's hardly the gung-ho teammate you hope for. Uh, there's Nathaniel he gets named. Nathaniel, and this comes early in the Gospel of John. Nathaniel, when he met Jesus, trolled him. Do you remember that story? He met Jesus and said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? <laughs> And then finally, the sons of Zebedee are named, James and John. Maybe you know that story, too. They're the ones who took Jesus aside and said, when you come into your glory, let us set one on your right and one on your left. We want to be right at the center of the seat of power. They did this behind the backs of the other disciples. Not exactly great teammates, but this is the team that Jesus picked. Three years earlier, at the start of his public ministry, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And then he called these others, including Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John. They had walked with him through Galilee. They had seen the crowds that he was starting to attract. They'd heard him tell remarkable, challenging, hopeful stories. They'd listened to him talk of the love and the mercy and the justice of God. They'd watched him feed hungry crowds. They watched him heal poor people. And they had started to believe in this vision of the kingdom of God. They had started to trust the promise of God's beloved community. And then, on Good Friday, it all came crashing down. 
When Jesus was crucified, all of that got buried with him when he died. But on Easter, Christ was raised from the dead, and all of those hopes and dreams and promises came back to life again, too. And now, whatever's going to come of it, whatever's going to happen in the wake of resurrection, is going to start with this surprising team that Jesus picked. Whenever I read this story, it reminds me of something that Kendra Creasy Dean wrote. She's a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. She wrote, God seems to have a preferential option for the unlikely. And if you think about it, that's the pattern we find throughout the biblical story. In the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, when God needs someone to be parents, matriarch and patriarch of God's people, God calls Abram and Sarah even though they're very old, even though they've never been able to have children of their own. When God needs a king, when God needs someone to lead uh, the Israelites out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, God calls Moses, although by all accounts, Moses was a terrible public speaker. When God needs a king for Israel, he calls David, the last, the least of the sons, all of the sons of Jesse. And when disciples are needed for Jesus, it's Peter, it's Thomas, it's Nathaniel, James, and John who are called. God seems to have a preferential option for the unlikely. And Crazy Dean goes on to write, God calls people not for what they have, but for what they lack. Empty hands receive, empty wombs are filled, empty tombs proclaim resurrection. God calls people, God calls us, you and me, not so much for what we have, but what we lack, because then we're better able to be filled and to bear and to contain the wisdom and the love and the spirit that comes from God, God who is renewing, God who is reconciling all things. For me, I hear that as incredibly good news. Because when I look around, there is, there is so much that is so wrong these days, right? There's homelessness on our streets. There's a legacy of racism in this country. There's a war in Europe. There's global climate change. Closer to home, uh, a, lot of a lot of us ex have experienced deep fractures in relationships in our families. And there's just a daily temptation to become hard-hearted or cynical or apathetic or selfish. And so on the one hand, there's, there's the enormity of all these challenges around us. And on the other, as followers of Jesus, there, there's the audacity of his gospel vision of the beloved community, where everyone's welcome, where everyone has what they need to thrive. And that leaves me feeling or imagining or recognizing all the things that I need to do, all the things that have to be done, all the things that ought to be done, all the things that must be done. And wow, that can pretty quickly become overwhelming and can leave me feeling pretty inadequate, wishing that I was smarter, wishing that I was stronger, wishing that I was more visionary, wishing that I uh, was more charismatic, wishing that I had more charm and courage to do great things or just better things or sometimes even just more things. This story reminds me that we are not asked to build a great movement. We're not tasked with turning the tide of history. We're not called to make sure that the world turns out right. In fact, when we try, we often make it worse. When we imagine that it's up to us to determine the future, then pretty soon we end up 
justifying, uh, the ends begin to justify the means, and we start to rely on things like manipulation and force and threats, and we tell ourselves that it's necessary because you have to be a realist. But more often than not, we just end up perpetuating cycles of fear and harm and pain. And so it's important to remember that we are not asked to save the world. We're not asked to save the church. We're not even asked to save ourselves. We trust that in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we trust that by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that was present at creation, the Spirit that was present in Christ, the Spirit that's present with us still, we trust that God has and is and will make all things new. We're not asked to save the world. We're called to follow in the wake of Jesus, who taught us to live in love and to act with mercy and to seek peace. It doesn't depend all that much on what we have, on our expertise or our experience or our wealth. What it requires first is open hearts and open minds and open souls, a willingness to be filled with the wisdom and the love and the spirit that comes from God, and then a readiness to share, to share that grace and peace and love and justice. And that's something that all of us can do every day in all of the places that we find ourselves. Today, though, I want to talk about uh, what we do here together at Portland Mennonite Church. Our congregation is at, at, at an inflection point, right? The, the, the pandemic's sort of winding down, and our congregation life is picking back up. Um, two years ago, March 2020, I remember just going through my planner, going through my date book and crossing out everything, everything we planned, everything that was coming up. There were a lot of Sundays when I was the only one. I sat right down there with my laptop, and we connected by Zoom, and this place was empty. And now, Sunday school. Next weekend, a full-blown retreat. This summer, family promise. It's great. It seems to me, it's almost like walking into a big room, maybe a gym at your school that's been dark and empty for two years, and then you walk over to the light panel, and you just start flipping on switches. You flip on the switch for Sunday school. You flip on the switch for the retreat. You flip on the switch for family. And I want to flip all the switches back on because I remember what it was like two years ago. I remember we had 80 or 90 kids and students here for Sunday school. I remember we had to have two services because there were 300 or more people here every Sunday. We were hitting on all the cylinders, and I want to just flip all those switches back on. But I'm not sure it's ever going to be the way that it was. And I'm pretty sure that whatever is ahead for us as a congregation, it is going to take time. It is going to take time to reconstitute our life together. This pandemic took two years. I'm pretty sure it's going to take at least two years to get all the light switch, switches flicked back on. And I need to say that for myself so that I don't get impatient or I don't get frustrated or I don't get overwhelmed. And I think we as a congregation need to recognize that so that we can realistically figure out what's ahead. We can realistically set priorities. There are things that we are going to be able to do this year, like Sunday school and family promise and the retreat. But i got to tell you, there's things that just aren't going to get done. There are committees that are not going to get reformed. There are events that are not going to get planned, not this year at least. It's going to take some time. Whatever's going to happen, though, it's going to take all of us. 
Because church isn't something that we come to. Church isn't something that we pay for. Church is us. Church is what we do. It's our worship. It's the work we do together of living out the gospel. So I hope you will all find your place on Team PMC. You all get picked on the playground. We're going to need help with Sunday school. We're going to need hosts for Family Promise. In the, in the winter, we're going to need people to sing in a church choir. We need people to listen and to care and to lead and to pray. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to take all of us. What we have and what we lack, just like Peter and Thomas and all the others before us. You know, this story in John 21 is uh, set on the Sea of Tiberias. And um, there's a church built there on the site where this, it's thought at least, this story took place. The church that's there now was built in the early part of the 20th century, but it sits on the remains of churches that go back as far as the 4th century. It's been there a long time. It's called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter. And if you go inside, there's a big limestone slab where it's thought... Jesus made this fire and laid out this breakfast for the disciples. If you go outside, right next to the church, there's a small rocky beach where you can walk down to the waters of the lake. And on a seawall next to it, a seawall that connects the church right by, right by the beach, there's a plaque. And the plaque reads, the deeds and miracles of Jesus are not actions of the past. Jesus is waiting for those we're still prepared to take risks at his word because they trust his power utterly. This isn't just a story from the past. Jesus is waiting for people, for you, for me, for us. People are willing to take risks, to take the risk of forgiveness, to take the risk of compassion, to take the risk of working for peace because we trust his power utterly. We trust the power of his grace and wisdom his promises, and his love. So may God grant us that courage. Amen.